How is everybody today? Can you all hear me in the back? Do I sound like I'm coming through the microphone or just shouting? Sounds okay? Sounds good? Okay. I don't want no funny business. You know that. Uh, let, us, let us pray. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we come and we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Father, thank you for uh, sending your son Jesus to die for our sin, to be buried, and to be raised from the dead. Father, thank you that all power and authority has been given to him and that he will never leave or forsake us. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for the way in which you work uh, through the, the preaching of your word, and we certainly pray that your word would be preached. Father, help me and all of my weaknesses and wickedness. Dear God, uh, have mercy and work through uh, my uh, feebleness, dear God. Make your appeal to the hearts and minds of your people and to all who are here uh, that, um, that you are the true and living God, and you, you have loved us in Christ through the gospel, and you call us home into uh, a reconciled, restored relationship with you. Father, help your people this morning that we would be renewed by your word and by your spirit, that we would be encouraged and refreshed, taught, rebuked, corrected, trained in righteousness, made more like Jesus than we have ever been before. You are able to do this, you are committed to do it, and we pray that you would, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, as you know, we are in a series in the book of Exodus, uh, and we're in a mini-series within that series, as you may recall. Um, the Lord summons his servants. We're looking at how God called Moses uh, to go to Egypt in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus. And... Um, Last week we talked about the first 12 verses. We're going to build on what we said there and uh, deal with the rest of chapter 3. But I want to begin reading in verse 10 because it catches us in the context of what we'll be talking about today. So please hear God's word, Exodus chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, or I am that I am, or I am uh, what I am, or I will be what I will be, um, and a whole lot of other possibilities. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all your generations. I want to stop there just for a moment and talk about um, how the Lord summons his servants and how in this passage we see the Lord uh, sends us and he and his uh, 
work is our message. Moses was uh, going uh, to back to Egypt, um, and uh, the first question he asked of God when, when commissioned is, who am I? And in this particular passage, he says, well, who are you? And, um, and, and God's response in both of these cases are related to one another. That's why we started at verse 10. Uh, when God says, I will be with you, he uses the same construction as he uses when he says, I am that I am. And uh, so the first thing that name means is that God is Emmanuel. He is with his people. He is present. He is a present God. He is a present Lord. Um, he's here right now. Uh, didn't Jesus say to his disciples upon uh, his resurrection, he said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That was part of the motivation for going, is that Jesus was with them. The other part of the motivation was that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to Jesus. It's the same thing with us. Jesus has all power and all authority, and so nobody can touch him. He's greater and more powerful than anybody and everybody. Uh, and not only that, he is present with his people always. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He lives inside of us, and that itself is uh, the message that God has come. He is with his people. Um, and notice how Moses is told to tell this to the Israelites. And so that gives us an application, doesn't it, that one of the things that we need to be doing with one another is preaching the, the presence of God to one another, that God is with us. Uh, no matter what we're going through, he is here with us. He hasn't left us. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't forgotten about us. He is with his people. Amen. Anyway, and so you see God breaks up his name a little bit. He breaks it down. Moses says, well, if I go to the people of Israel and uh, they say to me, um, uh, what's his name? Now, it's interesting to note that um, Israel never asked Moses that question. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I gathered, I was reading this, is that don't let a hypothetical make you hesitate. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we, we, we paralyze ourselves in ministry because we're thinking about all the possible scenarios that could take place. You know, well, what if this happened? What if that happened? Well, something's going to happen. You can guarantee that something's going to happen and something's going to go south. You can be sure of that. But you can also be sure that God is with you. And that makes all the difference. At least it should. Amen? I mean, the fact that God is with you, I mean, God is never put in a situation where he scratches his head or he paces the hallways of heaven trying to track down, you know, he's on the, he's on the, the walkie-talkie. Gabriel, where are you? I need some help, man. Michael, come on, help me out. God is never in that situation. God is calm, cool, and collected and in control on the throne. Nothing uh, surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. Many things catch us off guard, but God is not that way. And we need that preached to us regularly. That when, 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 the, when the bottom falls out and we get all anxious, God is not anxious with us. He's already got a plan. He's already figured out the answer. He already knows what he's going to do. And God oftentimes puts us through 
uh, the ringer because he wants us to know more deeply how sufficient his grace is, how his power is perfected in our weakness. Uh, the hymn writer one time said that if I didn't have a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve them. When, when, when the Apostle Paul said, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, all that stuff, how do you think that he knew those things? Well, he had been through all of those things. And he came to the conclusion, he came to be persuaded. He didn't get persuaded uh, uh, sitting in a, in a classroom uh, reading the Bible. He got persuaded because he went through the ringer several times. He got beat up, he got stoned, he got left for dead. Paul, you know, his thorn in the flesh, you know, we don't really know what it was. There's a lot of mystery around there. But it at least had to do with the fact that it was very difficult for Paul to preach a sermon without getting beat up. You know, when he, got, when he gave the benediction, folk used to beat him up. Don't do that today, okay? Um, but the point is that Paul went through all those difficulties, and then he was able to say, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities and so forth. And so, so when, when alarms happen and emergencies happen, know that God is not alarmed. He is not in a state of emergency. He is in a state of coming to your aid and being with you through it all. Um, when, God, when Moses asks this question of God, uh, who shall I say, what is your name? Uh, God answers in a very strange way. He says uh, to Moses, I am who I am. Some translations say, I am that I am. Uh, or I am uh, what I am. Or I will be what I will be. And, and the point is, you know, as, as you keep reading through verse 14, it says, I am has sent me to you. Um, and then, um, so, so part of what's going on in that particular uh, section is that God is saying to Moses, and we read it in context, God is asking Moses to go down, he's not asking him, he's commanding Moses to go down uh, to Egypt and bring his people out. And when God says, my name is I am, he's saying, I will be whatever I need to be, whatever God's people need me to be to make sure all the promises I've made to them come to pass. That's who I am. And if you stick with me, you'll discover all that I am. That's the point he's trying to make. And then he builds on that reality and says, uh, you, you notice the juxtaposition. Look at this carefully because God is, we talk about artistic. God is a very artistic God. And he writes in a very artistic way. And you notice the juxtaposition in verse 14. He says, God said to Moses. Then it says, and he said. God also said. Doesn't that remind you of Genesis 1? It's meant to remind you of Genesis 1. And God said, and God said, and God said. And everything was very good when God got finished talking. And so, but, but the juxtaposition of what God is saying, he says, uh, God said, and God said, uh, God said to Moses, I am, uh, say to the people, um, where am I? In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Then it says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. And instead of saying, I am, he puts the Lord in that place. 
The God of your fathers is in that place of I am. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That is my name, God says. That's my memorial name forevermore. And so apparently God is saying that what happened in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a good picture and a window into what God is up to and how God is as, as, as a being, as, as our Lord. The God of Abraham, and, and I think it's, it's an encouraging practice, it's an encouraging uh, endeavor for God's people uh, to, to, not necessarily word for word memorization, but to know Abraham's story is in chapter 12 to 25 in Genesis, and Isaac follows that, and Jacob is towards the rest of the book of Genesis. And to think about all that God did in those chapters to express his being to his people. You know, one of the places in the book of Genesis that God calls himself Yahweh, he calls himself the Lord, is in, uh, is in Genesis chapter 15, where... Um, where he says uh, to Abraham uh, in that great covenant passage, the, the cutting of the, um, the covenant, um, in verse 7 uh, of Genesis 15, uh, and he said to him, he said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. Doesn't that sound familiar? I am the Lord who's going to bring you out of Egypt. And so even in their history, they had a God who brought Abraham out of Chaldea, Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham was an idol worshiper. It says that in the Bible, in the book of Joshua. It says that he was an idol worshiper with his father Terah. And God knows how to bring a man out of idol worship. That's what, a, what, what does I am mean? It means a God who can bring you out of idolatry. He can bring you out of an idolatrous land. That's what his name means. And he can bring you into a promised land to possess. He can bring you into uh, the promised land. And, and when, when, um, when Abraham heard that, he said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God tells him to get the animals. And you know that's how they made covenants back then. When, when people have marriage ceremonies today, a marriage ceremony is a covenant. And they give rings. They exchange rings. Back then, what they did is they took an animal, as you know, and they began up here and cut the animal in half and laid one half here and one half there, and they walked between the pieces. And that was a way of saying, it was, it was calling a curse down on themselves if they didn't do what they said they were going to do. I hope what happened to that animal happens to me if I don't keep my promise. So it was serious. Um, they got blood on their feet. You know? And so what God is doing, when, when, when God tells Abraham, get those animals and cut them in half, he never tells Abraham to walk through the pieces. God is the one who walks through the pieces. And he calls a curse down on himself if he doesn't do what he says he's going to do. That's how serious God is about keeping his promises. And, and the beauty of the gospel is that God kept his promises. God kept his covenant. He was faithful through it all. We're all the covenant breakers. We're all the ones who should have been cut down. But on Calvary, it wasn't us getting cut down. It was Jesus getting cut down. Even though he's the one who kept the promise and was faithful through it all, he said, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the wrath on their behalf. That's amazing. The gospel is amazing. And that's what God is saying, communicating 
uh, to Israel, if they ask what my name is, tell them about the covenant I made with Abraham. I curse myself if I don't keep my promise. That's who I am. And, um, and so he goes on, and you can, I mean, you can look at each of the particular chapters in the story of Abraham. I mean, if we did it, we'd be here a while, and I know you have places to go. But I encourage you to take time and read those passages from chapter 12 to the end of, of Genesis and think about who God revealed himself to be in those passages and all of that has to be poured into this I am that I am when, when, when Moses comes back and tells the people that's who sent him. That Israel has to realize that this God who, who is coming to deliver them has a history. Um, he has already proven himself uh, to be who he is. And that's why he can just say to God, say to Moses in shorthand, I am, that's my name. Look at my history, look at my reputation, look at my resume. Not that he's trying to get a job, you know what I mean? But the point is that God is all that his people need him to be uh, so that the promises made to the forefathers actually get done. And another way we see that is as that God is saying, I am what I was. I will always be. The way I was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the way I'll be with you. And then he says, that's my name, uh, my name in verse 15, that's my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the God that we serve is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, if you believe in Jesus, you're a child of Abraham. This covenant he made with Abraham is an everlasting covenant. You've been brought into the fold of Abraham. God promised Abraham, I will use you to bless all nations. That's who God says he is. And that, that is something that Moses was tasked to tell Israel. And, and in light of that, it's something that we are tasked to tell one another, to remind one another. It's his memorial name. That's what Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so you can't read this passage without pointing to Jesus. Isn't that right? Because Jesus came on the scene, and, and he said in Matthew eleven twenty seven that no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So everything we know about God, we know through Jesus. God reveals himself through his word. By the word of God, the heavens were made. So even, the, even what we know about God from creation comes through his word. And what we know about God in, in, in the Old Testament, New Testament, comes through Jesus. It was, it was the spirit of Jesus, the Bible says, the spirit of Christ in the prophets preaching the gospel before, God, before Jesus got here. So Jesus was telling Moses what this was. And we, we, we have to remember that it was the angel of the Lord, right, who was in the bush speaking uh, to Moses. The angel of the Lord is Jesus. He is the one who is the angel of the Lord. And so Jesus is telling Moses, this is who I am. And then when he finally shows up in his incarnation, he's the one who says, I am the bread of life. Remember that? I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. Seven times Jesus says, I am. He's saying, I am the I am of the Old Testament. That's who I am. It means something when people show up, you know. Um, I remember, I recall when my, before my father died, um, he was in Philadelphia. We were in Virginia and um, got a call that he was on his way out and I took a, um, like Mario Andretti, I just drove from Virginia to Philadelphia and um, uh, I was doing about 95 and a police officer pulled right up next to me on a motorcycle and looked at me. I looked at him. I backed up a little bit. He went around and went off the exit. I said, I guess he gave me his approval and I kept right on going. And I got there in, in, in less than three hours. It's usually a three-and-a-half-hour trip. And, um, but God was with me then. I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> but anyway, uh, <clears throat> i tell you that story, not to tell you that I'm a fast driver. Um, but i tell you that story because my father was in significant straits. He was in a hospital room by himself, sitting there, uh, knew it, knowing that his time was, was coming to an end. And, and when he saw me and I saw him, he looked at me and he said, Oh, I'm so glad you're here. And boy, that just brought tears immediately to my eyes. I'm so glad you're here. Then he went from there to hospice, and he was in hospice, and I was at home with my brother in, in the house that we grew up in, and just something hit me. I said, I can't be here when he's there. I got to go sleep in the room where he is. And when I came in again, he said, oh, so I'm so glad you came, came tonight. Because the next day he died. I'm so glad you came tonight. And see, see, that's some of what God is doing here with Israel. Israel is in significant straits. They're in difficulty and hardship. And, and a couple of times, God, God says explicitly and he says implicitly. He says to Moses, I have come down to deliver my people. I'm here now in all their trouble and struggle. And Moses says, well, who am I? And he says, I'm coming with you. God didn't tell Moses, um, I want you to go to Egypt. Good luck. I'll be, uh, I'll be waiting here when you get back, and um, I, I, hope you, I hope you find success. No, God said, I'm coming with you. I'm coming with you, and, and God is with his people, and, and we need, the church needs to hear that message more and more, that God is with you, and the same God of Abraham who, who, who brought him from the Ur of the Chaldeans, who, who was mighty for Abraham, who rescued him from so many different things. That same God is with you. The same God who brought Isaac, as it were, back from the dead is with you. The same God of Jacob who, who wrestled with him and was fearful for his life, that same God is with you. Which is somewhat of a repetition from last week, but, but when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, that's repetition. As often as you do this until I come. That somehow we as God's people need repetition in our lives. We need a repetition. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis. We need that kind of repetition. And, and we need to pray uh, because, because we are so dull in sin. God, help it not to become mundane. That the freshness of the gospel when I first came to know you might be felt in my heart each day. That I might be moved by the same way that I was moved when I first met you. That it's not something that, oh yeah, I know about the gospel, I know about Jesus down the No, man, that's profound. There is nothing more profound you will ever come to know in this life than that God got up on a cross and died for your sins. 
was buried to put him away and was raised again for you to have a new life. There is nothing greater than that. We never graduate the gospel. Our life is founded on it. Our life is motivated by it. Our life is to be uh, uh, an example of it, an outworking of it. We never graduate that. And that's, that's somewhat why there is this repetitiousness in the Bible. The Bible, you know, God, like I said before, God just did not have Microsoft Office. He did not have boldface and italicized and underlining. He, he made his point. He underlined things by repeating himself over and over again. And so, so we see that here. In verse, uh, verse 16, uh, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, again, repetition, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of, of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Havites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now here, uh, God tells Moses that he is supposed to instruct the elders, the leaders, uh, to do something. And if you're a leader in the church, if you're a leader of a household, even if you're single, you're a leader of your household. Isn't that true? Um, if you're in that position, um, and we all in some sense are, uh, he tells his people, uh, again, he says, I have observed you. God, God knows you. He's seen what's been done to you. And he promises that he will bring them out of that affliction, bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, and apparently God will do it with great powerful acts. Um, notice what happens. This, this verse, you see this in chapter 4. If you turn over to Exodus chapter 4 and look at... Um, Verse uh, 29, uh, this, is, this, this, this happened, as God said. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard, listen, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. That's the type of response that, that God is looking for from each of us. That's the type of thing that motivates the heart, that melts the heart. Um, when, when, when they heard, they simply heard the fact that God had seen their affliction. He had visited them, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And that should be our response today as well, that when we hear uh, the gospel, when we hear that Christ is with us, when we hear that he is for us, that nothing can separate us from his love. And, and we, we need to remind ourselves. We need to memorize stuff sometimes. Sometimes we need some way to keep it in our minds um, because that's what's going to motivate our hearts to live for God in a way that is pleasing to him. God himself is the one who motivates us. His very being motivates us. Uh, Paul said uh, before, uh, it's the love of Christ that constrains me, that compels me, uh, because he's been convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that we who live would no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died and was raised again on our behalf. And then the, the final section here, um, the Lord sends us 
and his, 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 he and his wonders are our means. Look at verse 18. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Um, <clears throat> so there's a couple of things here that I wanted to point out um, that, that God uh, is emphasizing, it, it seems clear, that they're called to go to the king of Egypt and, and tell, them, tell him to release, uh, to let the people go. But then God uh, lets them know that he's not going to let them go. Now that's interesting because sometimes we don't, we don't, we won't share with folk because we feel like they're closed and they're just not going to hear it. So why even waste our breath? I was on the phone uh, this week with a, a friend of mine talking about um, uh, uh, talking about politics and and how uh, certain people are closed and why even pray for people anymore and. Um, why even pray for the leaders in Washington? And, and I, I, you know, by the grace of God, there, there needed to be some kind of um, uh, gentle rebuke uh, because, uh, because how do you and I know whether people will change or not change? Isn't that right? And, and I said when, when, when it wasn't this administration, but it was another administration, and I don't think it takes you long to stretch to know who I'm talking about, uh, but uh, um, whoever's in the White House, you may not like them, you may not like their policies, but you know, if we prayed for people as much as we complained about people, come on somebody, uh, they might actually change. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we believe in prayer, right? I mean, prayer is, is, is God prayed for you, Jesus prayed for you. He interceded in, in John 17 for all those who would believe uh, because of the word of the apostles, and we were just as deadheaded as some other people, dead in our transgressions and sins. And uh, wasn't it like Lazarus who was in the tomb, right? He was dead. He was four days dead. The man stunk. He was a corpse. But then Jesus said something. And that changed everything, didn't it? And um, the word of God is powerful. And the word of prayer is powerful because the word of prayer is based on the word of God. And uh, we should be people who pray for folk. How do you know what God's going to do through your prayer, through your witness to somebody else? We should be people ready to open our mouths, no matter how hard-headed someone might seem to be to us. The Word of God created the world. All God did was speak. You know, when God made this world with all of its beauty and vastness, I mean, the world is, is out of sight, man. We got somebody here from, from Japan, man. 
I mean, we, we, the whole world is beautiful. And, and God didn't even break a sweat when he made this. All he did was say some stuff. He just started talking. So let there be this. Boom, it was there. God's word is powerful. And when we pray for folk and gently and lovingly and boldly come to folk and say what God says, God's word does not return to him void. It accomplishes the purpose for which he has sent and succeeds in the thing for which he has given and it brings about transformation. It changes people. Yes, it does. It changed you, didn't it? Are you brighter than somebody else? No. Let me answer the question for you quickly. We are just as dull as everybody else is. It's not like, oh, Jesus, oh, I only needed a, a drop of Jesus' blood to save me. They need a gallon. You know what I'm saying? They're really a bad sinner, you know? Sin is sin, man. Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit. You know what I'm saying? And God said, that's it. Out. Because of what that eating communicated. It communicated, I want to be my own God. I don't need you, God, to tell me right from wrong. I'll make that decision myself. That's the decision everybody else makes. That's the decision we made. We don't want God telling us, do this and not that. Eat this and not that. Well, he don't do that no more. He, 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 eat whatever you want to eat. You know what I mean? Just say your grace. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, God's word is powerful. These men were told to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And God said, oh, by the way, before you go, he's not going to listen to you. It's not your careful argumentation. It's not your thorough preparation. Not that that's a bad thing. You should be careful to articulate clearly and prepare yourself in prayer and in study. But at the end of the day, unless God stretches forth his hand, nothing's going to happen. It's up to God to change people's hearts. And uh, that's what he says. He's not going to let you go unless a strong hand makes him go. And so God says, that's why I'm going to stretch out my hand, and when I do, he'll let you go. So he's saying to Moses, and, and you have to see the subtleness in that, Moses just raised his hand to an Egyptian and killed him, right? Remember that part of the story back in chapter 2 where Moses saw this Egyptian beating up this slave and he went over there and killed the Egyptian? And, 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 and then Moses was the one running away. It wasn't the Egyptians. And so God is alluding to that here in retrospect. He's saying, it's not your hand, Moses, it's not your anger. It's not your authority. I've got to stretch forth my hand. And then when you see the same sort of thing going on in the life of Christ, when God says that his hand is not, his arm is not shortened uh, to be able to save, that he's going to stretch out his arm. You, you remember that in, in, in Isaiah? Where is it? Isaiah 53, uh, verse 1. It's all over Isaiah, but in particular, it's in Isaiah um, uh, 53, you see it in uh, 52 also, uh, 52 um, verse 10, uh, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God, and how shall they see it? Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And it's talking about Jesus, and when Jesus showed up, that was the arm of the Lord, the hand of the Lord coming to this world and he surely has brought salvation. Yes, he has. When God does it, it sticks, man. Some people say that God is like duct tape. 
He's not really. But you, you get the point, don't you? Because duct tape, if anything, you see guys riding down the street, man, they got their car wrapped up together with duct tape. You know what I mean? They didn't fix their car with duct tape. They put the bumper on and wrapped it with the duct tape sticks, man. That stuff will hold your car together. They can put a car together with duct tape. But the point is that when Jesus died on the cross, when he shed his blood, when he died and was buried, when he died as a righteous lamb who had never sinned, when he was raised from the dead, that was gospel. And it works. And it's real. And people's lives get changed. They were, they were dead in their transgression and sin, but now they're alive in Jesus Christ. God gave them a brand new heart. You see folk who were, who were once lost but are now found, they're like a brand new person. Because they are a brand new person. They're completely different. You know the stuff in your own life. Right? Stuff you used to do. Sometimes you may still do it, right? But your mind messes with you now, don't it? Before you could do it and you didn't care. But now you all messed up. You can't, you can't get your act together until you get it right with God. You know, the, the, one of the differences, one of the difference between a, a saved person and an unsaved person, a saved person will repent. Or a saved person will confess that and repent and run away from it. But an unsaved person will try to make an excuse for it. It's the way I was raised. Or, well, if you hadn't did that, I wouldn't have did this. A saved person don't say that. A saved person say, look, I sinned. That's it. I need Jesus. Wash me. Okay, now, now, now when, he went, when they went down to, um, uh, that was a good rabbit trail, but it was a rabbit trail nonetheless. Um, but, but the point is that, that when they went down to, uh, to Egypt, they were told to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. God was going to bear his hand. He was going to bring his hand, his mighty hand, and that's what was going to bring them out. He was going to show wonders that we'll talk about in, in the future, Lord willing, his plagues which were a judgment against the gods of, of Egypt. He was going to bring judgment against the nation of Egypt. And I will give this people favor, he says. Um, you know, God is a just God. He's got just policies. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says this in chapter 15, uh, verse 12. Uh, he says, Uh, if, your, if your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. And um, he says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this today. Um, and so, so it goes on into other things, but, but the point is that, that when, when Israel was going to come out of Egypt, God was going to load them up with all kinds of riches and wealth. Why? Because they were cheap labor. They, were, they didn't get paid anything. They were just slaves. They didn't get anything for all their work they did. They built Pharaoh's uh, kingdom. And he released them. But God says, I'm going to load you. I'm going to make you give you favor before the people. And so ask. Ask for gold. Ask for silver. Ask for clothing. And put it on your sons and your daughters. That God was going to enrich his people for their suffering. That's the type of God that we serve. He's not a God who, who leaves us hanging. You know, it's like, 
uh, being on an airplane, you know, and someone says, well, you look kind of confined on this airplane. We're 30,000 feet in the air. I'm going to let you go free, and they just throw you out the airplane. Uh, that's not freedom, folks. That's death happening. You know what I mean? You didn't give me a parachute. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> just threw me out. Um, the point is that God is going to enrich his people. He's going to plunder the nation that has oppressed them. He's going to pay them back for the evil that they have done. You know, one of the things that comes out of this um, passage, I'm not going to tell you about 40 acres and a mule. Um, uh, you, you could use that passage for this purpose. I mean, who was it? William um, uh, General Sherman is the one who um, tried to give the free blacks uh, 40 acres and a mule, and Lincoln got assassinated, and Andrew Johnson said, nope, taking it back, you know. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, the point is that um, when, when folk come out of slavery, and when we come out of sinful slavery, slavery to sin, we need uh, some kind of furnishing, some kind of help in our daily walk. Uh, we cannot experience freedom all by our lonesome. We need one another to help each other walk in freedom. And when you and I see injustice is done in society, where people have been disenfranchised, whatever the hue of their skin might be, it, it, should be the, it should be the position of the church to see to it that, that we care for folk in the church as well as outside of the church. Uh, isn't that what Jesus taught? I think he did. If you look at Luke chapter 6, it says that quite clearly, and it even says that with respect to not even disenfranchised people, it says that with respect to our enemies. The Bible says, I say to you, Luke 6, 27, uh, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Now, for some of us, we need to meditate on that for a couple months. Do good to folks who hate us? Come on, God, what's up? Well, wait a minute. Um, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Um, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. You don't need the Holy Spirit to love people who love you. Did you know that? You don't need the Holy Spirit uh, to give to people who give to you. Anybody can do that. I'll give something to you, and I know you're going to give something back to me. I don't need God to do that. I don't need a changed heart to do that. That's easy. You're going to give me something, I'll give you something. That's okay. When I, when I was growing up, my, 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 my uncle and I, one of my uncles had the same birthday as I did. We both born on September 14th, and he was born before I was, though. And um, it, when I got a job, I used to give him $10. He gave me $10. And we did that for several years. And it was like, you know something, just keep your money, man. You know? I mean, you give me $10, I'll give you $10. What is that? You know what I'm saying? Just keep your money. Just, we'll, just, we'll just wave at each other on the birthday. You know what I mean? But the point is that, that you don't need the Spirit of God to give to people who, who, who love you. You know what I mean? But, but the Bible says, but love your enemies and do good and land, um, and land expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is crying to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We hated God. We were evil towards God. But he loved us in spite of us. You know, when Jesus came and died, he died for sinners. He died for the ungodly. He died for the weak. He died for wicked people. We were wicked people. We did wicked things. We were evil. Some people say, I don't like to think of myself that way. Well, that's the way you are. That's the way I am. 
apart from Christ Jesus. We are evil, wicked people. You know, you think about it this way, okay? Let me give you an example, an illustration, and we can close this out, but, you know, you do good things for people, okay? All right, that's nice, okay? You saw a lady fall with a bag, you went over and picked it up and went about your way, right? That's nice. You ought to do that. Why did you do it? Well, she's a human being, like I'm a human being. If that happened, I want it to happen, I'd like somebody to care for me. Okay, well, that's kind of self-centered. Um... So you did it because you want somebody to do that to you. I understand that that's what Jesus said. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's part of what Jesus calls us to. But, but what motivated you to do that? And so an action is not good simply because you did something good. An action is good because it was motivated by God. I did this because that's the way God is. You understand? Know and I did it in the power of God, by the Spirit of God. I did this because, because Jesus did that for me. Jesus saw me fall down, and he went over and lifted me up. That's why I did it, because that's what he did for me. And the Spirit of God, who glorifies Christ to me, he's the one who motivated me to go over and do that for that person. And then when I got there, I didn't do it so somebody would look at me and say, oh, look at, look at there, he's such a nice person. I did it with, with, the, with the objective of God getting the glory. And so an action is good when it's motivated by God, uh, empowered by God, and glorifying to God. That's what makes the action good. And if those two, three things are not in line, it's not a good action in God's sight. You just did something like a Pharisee to be seen or because of the love of humanity, which is nothing wrong with that. We all love humanity. But if that's the end of why you do things, simply because you love humanity, that's not going to work because what's going to happen when humanity smacks you in the face and kicks you on the ground? Then humanity doesn't like you anymore. And what's going to give you the power to get back up and, and embrace and love? The power of the gospel is necessary to love people and to live for people in a way that serves people for the glory of God. And so we're called to love our enemies and we're called to uh, um, respond to injustices in a way that we, we seek to um, better people's circumstances. When we see people who have been disenfranchised, people who have missed out, that we, we give of ourselves and we give of how God has blessed us uh, to see to it that they are established and not codependent upon us, but are able to live and stand on their own uh, two feet. That's what, that's what God's justicism did for Israel. The Egyptians were plundered by them because they were laboring for them for 400-some years without payment and without rest. And God says, I'll do something. I'll give you favor so that you leave with a payment. So we should have that same sort of God way of thinking about circumstances, of about people in significant straits, seeing to it that people... As God has commanded us, we, are been, we have been blessed and we are called to be a blessing. Uh, we live in a society that says get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. But we're not to be people that way. We're to be people who say, I have something here. Now let me go and find somebody who has needs and see how I can help establish them so that they're in a position to go out and find people who have needs 
and it just keeps reverberating. Not to make them codependent upon me, but to get them to a place where they can actually help others as well. That's what God calls us to. That's one of the outworkings of the gospel in the life of a people is justice and mercy showed to those in need. It begins in the, in the church and it flows outside our doors into society. Um, let's pray. Let's pray to God and, and go to the table and give thanks to him. Our Father, in the name of Jesus, we come, we give thanks to you for the gospel. We thank you for what you did in Christ Jesus for us. He is the great I am. He's the one who supplies every need we have according to uh, your riches and glory in him. Father, he's the one who saw us in our weakness and difficulty, and even when we hated him, he came running after us and laid down his life. He stretched out his hands on a cross and was crucified and shed his blood so that we could be saved, sanctified, filled, and restored and productive in this world. God, give us grace to be productive when we see folk in difficult straits, to be mercy seekers and justice seekers. And we pray that we do it in the name of Jesus, not some social gospel, Lord, but a gospel that really impacts the social structure and culture of the world we live in. Father, we've been redeemed. We've been set free. Lord, please um, help it to be seen in the way we act towards others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.